This morning we are reading the Palm Sunday story according to the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, now, I feel like I should start out my Palm Sunday sermon by being really honest about the fact that Palm Sunday is just not my jam. I do not love Palm Sunday. Um, it's probably my least favorite Sunday of the year to write a sermon for and to get up and preach on. I mean, I've really... I mean, I've only been at this preaching thing about half a decade, which is not much in the span of a full career. But already, just a couple years in, I'm, I'm bored. I'm bored with Palm Sunday. And if I'm bored with preaching it, I'm going to assume that you all are probably a little bored hearing this story as well. This message of Palm Sunday, it's the same every single year. We get this story about, you know, the people, they expected a big, mighty king. They thought Jesus was coming to be their ruler. They expected Jesus to march into Jerusalem on his big white horse in his shining armor with a big flashing sword. He was coming to do away with the Romans or whatever evil power we sort of imagine the Romans to be. They sort of imagined that Jesus was really hawkish, that he was coming to fight back. But surprise, Jesus shows up on a donkey's colt, this low-to-the-ground, dirty, humble animal He's sort of silly looking almost as he comes into Jerusalem. And the message of Palm Sunday that, you know, I have preached several times and you've probably heard year after year is something along the lines of Jesus is this unexpected king. He's a dove, not a hawk. He comes in with this message of peace rather than fighting back against the Romans. Jesus is subversive. And I don't want to be too flippant. I mean, that's a really important foundational part of our theology. It's such an important part of who Jesus was. And that's great. And I love that message pretty much any other Sunday of the year. But on Palm Sunday, there's something that is so expected about it that, you know, when I've gone into churches on Palm Sunday before, and that's what the sermon is, I know I turn off my own brain and I, you know, Call me crazy, but I don't really think the sermon is a chance for a power nap in the middle of the worship service. I like to have something interesting said, not something that I expect to hear. And if I'm turning off my brain, I know that many of you out there probably expect to hear that same message and are bored by it as well. 
So this year, um, I'm actually pretty glad we're reading the story of Palm Sunday from the Gospel of John. We don't read this one in John very often because the writer of this gospel sort of abridges the story of Palm Sunday. This is the Cliff Notes version of what happens. John pretty much says, you know, Jesus came in, he was riding a donkey, there were some palm branches, the end. Like, it's really the short version. The other three gospels go on and on about where the donkey came from and what the people were yelling and how much they loved throwing their coats and their palm branches in the road. And it's this like extended story. But John is short and sweet and to the point. Jesus went into Jerusalem. He happened to be riding a donkey and there were some palm branches. And I like John for that. I mean, I can almost sort of hear a little bit of his own boredom behind how quickly he moves through this story. But John, what's really interesting about this gospel is that John tacks on details to either side of his Palm Sunday story. And these are details that the other gospel writers don't tell us about. So first of all, we have this little shady scene that's happening before Jesus enters Jerusalem. We get this tidbit about the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the priests, sort of the pastors of their day. And they've heard and they have seen all of these crowds that are amassing whenever Jesus comes to town. And these people are amassing not just to see Jesus, but now also to see Lazarus, who Jesus has raised from the dead. And they're getting afraid of these crowds. And they start plotting to put both Jesus and Lazarus to death, which is sort of a detail we don't hear about too often. And this might seem kind of strange to us because, you know, these leaders, although they sometimes get kind of a bad rap in the Bible, they really weren't bad people. The Pharisees, the priests, these were just good religious leaders. These were the pastors and the elders of their day. And so really, like, we should hear this and we should wonder, why were these good Jewish leaders plotting to kill two good Jewish boys? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus and Lazarus aren't the enemies of the Jewish people here. If there is an enemy here, it's the Romans who had come in and occupied the land. So, you know, it sort of makes me wonder, why are the leaders doing this? Now, the leadership is afraid of someone as powerful as Jesus, someone who can raise someone from the dead. But really what they're more afraid of here are the crowds. Because wherever Jesus went, crowds tended to follow. Because people like a guy who can raise someone from the dead. But the Romans, they are not into crowds. The Romans do not like crowds at all. Crowds kind of freak out the Roman legion a little bit. Because groups of occupied people, when they gather together in large groups, they can fight back. They can protest. They can cause a ruckus. And so the Roman army got really, really good at quashing any possible rebellion before it even got a spark going. They kept control of the lands that they were in with a pretty iron fist back then. They would go in and they just had absolutely zero tolerance for gatherings of people, no matter why the people were gathering. So these Jewish leaders, they see these crowds starting to form around Jesus, and there's this crowd that has come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover, and they're starting to get a little twitchy. They know the Romans don't like crowds, and they know that if the Romans notice how many disaffected people are starting to gather around Jesus, the Roman army is not going to make a distinction between one group of Jews and another group of Jews. They're just going to crush all of them. And in fact, the leaders weren't wrong about this. This does end up happening about 40 years later after Jesus' death. 
Rome got really fed up with these crowds of Jews who were starting to actually rebel. We have several rebellions, the Maccabean being the most famous at this point in time. And the Roman army just absolutely destroyed them, like really drove them into the ground. They killed tons of people. They leveled the temple to dust and rubble. The temple has never been rebuilt from this point forward. They wiped out the population, and the people who survived actually left the land of Israel and went elsewhere. It's called the Diaspora. So the Romans were not messing around, and the Jewish leaders had some right to be afraid of these crowds. So these Pharisees get together and they say to themselves, you know, it's probably better that we get rid of Jesus and Lazarus, these two instigators, but let's make an example of them. And then maybe the Roman army won't come and crush us. Maybe the Roman army won't destroy all of our people. If we get rid of Jesus, we'll get rid of these crowds and we can save most of the people. So that was part of the reasoning. I mean, part of it was also that Jesus just made these leaders profoundly uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do with him. So it kind of made me think this week, and um, this is a bit of a silly example, but I think it resonates a bit. Um, on social media, like Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram, or any of these sites where people have a version of themselves online, there's sort of unwritten rules about how we interact with each other on social media and what is or isn't appropriate to put up there. So, you know, it, it's totally appropriate to post a picture of, like, your kids playing nicely with each other at the park, pushing each other on the swing. Like, that's really cute. But you're really unlikely to see someone who's posted a photo of their grandchildren throwing a massive tantrum in the middle of Kroger. Like, one picture is cute, the other picture is not so cute. You don't really post pictures of screaming kids on Facebook. We, we curate the image of ourselves that we have online, what other people think about us, what they see about us. Um, we like to put sort of our best foot forward. One of the great unspoken taboos on Facebook that you would notice if you're on there is that there really is almost no mention of divorce. We know that divorces happen, that people split up. This is a part of life. But when it happens, I have never seen someone actually say so on Facebook. Um, a friend of mine from high school who I lost touch with, all of a sudden one day on Facebook, uh, her name had changed back to her maiden name. And I clicked on her, and she all of the photos of her and her husband of five years were just gone. There wasn't a single mention. Divorce is sort of a taboo. We don't like to talk about things that make us unhappy or things that make us seem like real kind of flawed human beings on Facebook. We'd rather, you know, see cat videos, not hear about your run with norovirus. Like there are unspoken rules. And this isn't just social media. Like this is how we interact with each other in real life as well. So if we were to run into each other buying pasta uh, at Kroger some Sunday after church, and I said to you, oh, hi, how are you doing this afternoon? The answer I most likely expect to hear from you is, oh, I'm fine. The weather, it's great outside. Or, you know, I'm doing okay. The kids are sick right now, but we'll get through it. And we would sort of nod nicely to each other and then continue on with our grocery shopping. Neither one of us would want to be lassoed into some conversation standing next to the cans of crushed tomatoes about your uncle's recent cancer diagnosis and how your entire family is coming unraveled around it. We have these sort of polite rules for conversation. If someone says, how are you doing? And they're not someone you know well or you're not in a good space for a conversation, you simply say, oh, I'm doing fine. And if you really want to hear what someone has to say, you might follow up later. But we have rules for how we interact with each other, what feels socially appropriate to us. 
And this is sort of what Jesus isn't very good at. Jesus is not very good at following these unspoken social cues. He wasn't really a polite conversation, squeaky clean Facebook profile kind of guy. He's the kind of guy who you'd be sitting there over the bananas and say, hey, how's it going? And then he would give you a truthful and unbelievably awkward answer right there over the produce section. And that's part of what makes him so uncomfortable for the leadership of the Jewish people. He's charismatic and he's a straight shooter. He's a miracle worker, which always helps. But he also (laughs) invites people to be real with him. Scripture is full of these stories of Jesus talking to people who are sort of on the edges of society, sort of impolite people, prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners and drunkards and all these different people, people who had disabilities, which at that time was a much more stigmatizing issue than it would be today. Jesus not only talked to people like that, but he told them, you know, I love you anyway. I love you, and you are going to be healed. He would invite people into his presence. It was very uncomfortable and very socially awkward at the time. But I think that that is sort of what makes Jesus valuable to us as well. Um, I was thinking about the places on social media where I don't feel like I need to keep up that polished presence. Um, One of my Facebook groups, it's a secret group, so no one can see what you post in there except people in the group. And it's a group of women who are moms and clergy members. And it's a really nice group because it's a place where you can go on and you don't have to be a pastor. You can say, you know, I love my kids every day, and today I really don't like them. They were really, really bad today. And we can be honest with each other about ways that we weren't good moms that day. We weren't the mom our parent, our children needed for us to be because they were just so difficult. Uh, last night, one of the moms posted, and I love this story, that her two-and-a-half-year-old is going through a breaking things phase. Everything needs to be broken. And he brought a basket to her and said, Mom, is this broken? And she said, no, hon, that's not broken. So he kicked his foot through the basket and said, is it broken now, Mom? (laughs) Yes, it is broken now. Um, And I I loved that uh, she felt safe posting that to our group, but then also safe saying that, you know, her reaction was not maybe the kindest and most pastoral to her two-and-a-half-year-old at that moment. It's a safe space where our fronts don't have to be polished. It's not a public Facebook presence for people. And I think that that is something similar in some sense to what Jesus seems like in these stories to me. That Jesus doesn't have any patience for false piety or people pretending to be something that they're not. In fact, one of the most famous things Jesus says to the Pharisees in Scripture is that they are like whitewashed tombs. They look so presentable on the outside, but inside they're rotting and dirty and disgusting and full of death, that they don't match on the outside and the inside. And I think that if Jesus were on Facebook, he'd be one of those people who's just uncomfortably honest with us. He would be so tired of how many perfect photos you put up. Like, yeah, sure, you had a lovely green salad for lunch, but I'm sure you ate a bucket of ice cream for dinner tonight. You know, that's sort of the Jesus we get here. And this is the Jesus we get on Palm Sunday in the book of John as well. This guy who's honest, he's just himself, who is known for simply loving people the way they were. And it's why crowds came out to meet him. It's a really attractive picture, even aside from the whole miracles of like raising someone from the dead. It's an understandable reason for people to follow him. He seems real. He seems approachable. And this is the Jesus that if we read through the Gospel of John, you'll continue to experience throughout the story of Holy Week. 
this idea of Jesus who sits at a table sharing a meal with his friends, a Jesus who's just brokenhearted when Judas betrays him, or this moment where he's in the garden and he knows what's coming for him, but he can't help but pray, just, God, take this away from me. I don't want to do this, but I will if you want me to. It's a really human prayer. And on the cross, I mean, this is sort of the place where Jesus becomes his most profoundly honest and human. If you read his last words and sort of take them out of Bible jargon and try to update them a bit, they start to sound really human. Like they're coming from the places of his deepest needs. Things like, I'm thirsty, or forgive them. Things like, I'm alone, and God, why have you left me here? And I love this image of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is just profoundly and relatably human, that he's honest about who he is. And I think that's worth our time and attention to pay close, close attention to our reading this week, especially in Holy Week. So today on Palm Sunday, yes, let's certainly gather, let's continue to sing songs and welcome this unexpected king into Jerusalem. But also, let's remember to keep the very human and honest side of Jesus with us as we walk into Holy Week, this time of bread and wine and death and life and darkness and light and curtains torn apart. Let's keep an eye in these stories toward what is real and what is concrete and what is honest, even when it's very difficult to look at. And then I think in this Holy Week, let's give thanks to God for this gospel that tells us a story of a Savior who's honest about himself and who's honest about who we are and yet chooses to love us anyway. So thanks be to God. Amen.